Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algeman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Carl Janowski. Carl has over 20 years of product development experience working for Sure Incorporated. Currently, he's a senior project manager who oversees global product development projects, working with engineers from all over the world to develop new audio products. Carl, welcome to the show. Please take Hi, a Anthony. few minutes uh, and introduce yourself and, and just give the idea, the audience an idea of how data influences what you do. Uh, sure. So I think, as you mentioned, I have 20 years uh, development product development experience. I was an electrical engineer at Sure, developing as an engineer. I did some software for sure for several years. I did what we what is called systems engineering or requirements management. And then I kind of moved into project management. And now I manage teams of engineers that can be anywhere in the globe mm. to develop new products for sure. And, uh, you know, I think uh, data is key on a lot of things in engineering. And especially when you're making new products in prototypes, because a lot of times you're not sure if what you built works or not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in this new global world, too, there's a lot of regulations we need to pass. Um, sure makes a lot of wireless stuff, and every country seems to have different rules for what's allowed or what isn't allowed. And we have to make sure our products kind of conform to all of that at all points. How do you um, how do you track that? How do you keep uh, abreast of kind of this global responsibility of tracking these different things? Because that's a in any industry right now, that's that's kind of a common challenge of knowing what regulatory hurdles you need to go through, um, you know, from a data perspective or otherwise. Uh, so we certainly have a department that tries to keep on top of that. And uh, for specific regulations, we'll actually sit on the committees as well. You'll mm -hmm. see big companies like Google and Apple and Samsung and that type of stuff try to influence um, those, especially in the cell phone industry where they're wireless, but they want to have real fast turns. So they don't want to be burdened by too much regulation. Sure. Um, but the big trick, too, is not just, uh, you know, they can write some words on a sheet of paper. It's how do they interpret that? And if you go to a test lab in Shanghai, are they going to interpret that the same way as they do in Chicago? Right. And uh, right. so and a lot of times, uh, you know, when we, we were challenging data, we're really challenging how did you interpret that? What did you actually do? How did you get that data? And can we even reproduce that? Right, um, right. It, it's, it reminds me, I, there was one time, because I'm sure you you have a, a certain amount of like federal regulation and other things that you have to think about when from either an engineering perspective or, or just a product perspective in the marketplace. I'll never forget, I was at a conference one time and I, I met a regulator. And I'm like, just kind of take them to the side after the session. And I'm like, I'm like, so how do you guys come up with these uh, regulations that you that you make us jump through? And like you're saying things in Sarbanes-Oxley, like we need to have data governance and things like that. And wh where did you even come up with that? And he kind of like looks over his shoulder. He's looking around and he's like, he's like, you know what? We kind of just watch you guys and we see what you're talking about and we say, hey, that's a good idea. And we do that. And then similarly, when you start implementing our advice, we look at what we see and 
depending on what people are doing, we're like, okay, that's right on the right track versus trying to come up with it ahead of time to say, do this, this, and this. That's why they're intentionally vague and they intentionally leave it to interpretation so they can decide, okay, who's interpreting this the way we think is a good idea. And they kind of learn from that as well. It blew my mind because I'm like, you, you expect regulators to have it all figured out. They don't have it all figured out. No. So absolutely. Right. So that's a big thing of us is we say, we think you should test it like this. Mm. Um, if it's like, uh, you know, we have just a lot of safety regulations both with power supplies and lithium-ion batteries and you know we're going to be the expert at what's the worst case for our product right Mm -hmm. they're not going to you know, they, they would need to be sitting with the engineer that designed it to really understand the intricacies of everything um, mm-hmm. to figure that out. And so what we try to do is sit down with them beforehand and go through what's worst case and how they're going to test it. And then, of course, we try to test it in our uh, facility first in the same way they're going to test it. And ideally, it's always nice if you have someone on site while they're testing it to make sure you they you have you know, pictures of their setup and understand if, if there's something that doesn't seem right with the data we took, mm-hmm. you know what the difference is. Um, Now, obviously with the world being less open to travel at this point in time with the virus, uh, you know, we're trying to do a little bit more of that remotely. And that's a you know a whole new challenge. Yeah, I would imagine the the entire kind of engineering process and collaboration gets a monkey wrench thrown into it when almost everybody's trying to be as remote as possible. Yeah, so I've, uh, you know, I've been working with engineers from around the world for a long time now, and uh, a lot of times that's, you know, uh, engineers in China and engineers in Europe working together. Mm -hmm. And so that's also a lot of people speaking English as a second language to each other, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So that's uh, a challenge that I think a lot of people that are going through this virus maybe don't understand as well, is that, uh, you know, you should always realize when someone's speaking not their native language and really try to understand how to go slower for them or give them a, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, breadth of what a word means than what, how we try to uh, make real precise definitions in engineering terms of what a word means. Um, so like I kind of mentioned, I, I used to write requirements and when you write requirements, you want to be very specific, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're working with people that have English as a second language, I think what you want to do is give them some leadway and say, well, did you mean this or did you mean this? And don't necessarily think they have the same precision with your language as, uh, as you do. You know, I might even extend that because even though it's it's definitely true in the international context, I just think about right now with the coronavirus and everybody now working remotely and a lot of times people aren't set up to do video chats like what we're doing right now. They're they're set up to do just audio and you lose a lot. Just like it's hard to get subtlety out of an email, you lose a lot in this kind of virtual world. And I think even though we're not we're, we're both talking English as our native language, it's still more difficult to talk even on video and certainly on audio than it would be in the same room. And and so the same lessons apply just in a slightly different context for this kind of challenge, this friction almost in, in the communication. Yeah. You know, the, the, the visual gives you so much. Um, I was thinking to a meeting I was, what I was in, a, you know, maybe about a month ago or something where I saw everyone on the other side on their cell phones. And you're just like, you know that the person's talking from my team is everyone's gone to too much detail and the meeting's starting to lose. Oh, yeah. And that's where you that's where you kind of realize, all right, everyone, we're going to. All right. That's the end of that subject. We'll take that offline. We're going to move to the next subject. Um, and, uh, you know, that's part of it. And then I think also certain cultures are a little uh, uh, 
not as open as Americans are to interrupting other people to get their two cents in, right? <laughs> you, 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 you can know this, like, you know, the salespeople will always know how to interrupt and get in and get their two cents in. And then other cultures are a lot more polite than we are. That's right. And so kind of trying to read their face or you can see they have something to say and trying to make sure there's a pause so that they can say it and not feel uncomfortable or, uh, you know, that also changes over familiarity, right? Mm-hmm. The more they work with you, they kind of understand how to have the conversation. But especially at first, people may be a little in other cultures, especially if they're afraid of how good their English language is, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Of being ready to jump into something. Oh, yeah. And, and I could just, as a good leader, as a good manager of teams, you know, trying to get the perspective of everybody, a lot of times the quietest person has a wealth of knowledge that you might miss out on if you don't give them that extra little nudge to say, hey, what, what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, how can I help um, kind of elicit that from those folks that are, are more quiet on the team and making sure that they have a voice as strong as their ideas are? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I try to publish an agenda for my meetings, uh, especially when it's English as a second language, uh, because, A, I think it's respectful of people's time. Mm-hmm. I always try to tell people, don't show up if you don't need to be here. Um, right. I think, too, it keeps my meetings from going on forever. Um, especially when it's 9 p.m. at night and I'm tired. I would like to get through this meeting and I have specific things I want to cover. And what I typically try to do is put the agenda up during the meeting um, and type the notes in as people talk. Because then, A, they can see what I wrote in English. And if they read better than they speak or if they couldn't understand because of audio, they kind of have two ways to verify the communication. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll correct me. No, Carl, I, you, you should have wrote this or, you know, so I'm taking meetings as notes as I'm going. And also like at 9 p.m. at night, when I wake up the next morning, I'm like, I think we had a meeting. I don't remember. What did we say? At least I have record. Yeah, well, that, I like that a lot, actually, because for a couple of reasons. One is that it's difficult sometimes when you're administering a meeting to take the notes yourself. And if you're if you're trying to jot on the side while writing or while while leading the meeting and talking, it's it, it's disjointed. It's difficult to understand. Like people don't know what you're doing. But if you put it up on the screen two good things happen. One, you make sure you get it right to your point. And two, I think that the people that are in that meeting, if they saw you and were participating in you putting those words on the screen, I think they have a greater sense of ownership of the outcomes for that meeting because of that process. Like they, the, if it's beyond just saying we went away and then sent out an email later saying, hey, this is what we did in this meeting. In reality, you've created it on the fly there, agreed upon those outcomes, and then publish that uh, and share that however makes the most sense. And then I, I normally send those meeting notes off to everyone in the meeting. And I've had people that have never attended a meeting saying, but Carl, I get your notes every week and I read them. So, you know, that that's kind of like, well, at least I did that person, you know, the right. He didn't need to be there, but mm-hmm. he at least knows what's going on. And we can kind of move forward that way. Yeah. Well, these these kinds of basic blocking and tackling kind of 101 types of project management techniques are just that much more important now when you you don't know you know what people on your team. If if we if we bring it back to like a, a pretty typical scenario right now, where say I'm running a team in a business that normally we would sit together and we would uh, be working hand in hand all day, and we know when people are in the office and when they're taking breaks or what have you. All of a sudden, that's gone, and we're all working remotely. And it comes back to like, it's not about the time. It, it really hasn't been about the time for a long time, but it's it's about what you're producing. It's about what are the artifacts that you've created through the effort you've put in. And 
you know, in, in today's world, we need to flex a little bit on time. Sometimes we have to deal with something. We have to get out to a store. Or we have to take care of a kid or what have you. Like every meeting now has a kid screaming in the background or a dog barking or whatever. And so if we can be sensitive to that, but recognizing, hey, this person's getting this stuff done and we can see evidence of that. I think that goes a really long way to making sure your team is performing the way it needs to perform in these in these weird times. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I was going to say earlier, too, I was talking about interrupting people during meetings and stuff, and I definitely made some mistakes in my early kind of meetings at times where I would move from one agenda item to the next agenda item without saying, does anyone have anything else to talk about this agenda item? And re realizing that my pause wasn't going to solicit the input. But if I said, do you have anything else? That means I'm trying to wrap this up because uh -huh. at the end of the meeting, people would want to go back up to the top of the agenda again because they had something they never said. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt I was spinning my wheels a bit. And so I think, uh, uh, you know, I think I got better at that over time. Yeah. And, and I think that's good for any any meeting um, at any time is to be very clear on we're covering this issue right now. And we're we're gonna cover it entirely, and now we're moving on to this issue, and and just being clear in those expectations, and it works good in one meeting. It works really good when you've done this consistently over dozens, if not hundreds, of meetings over time, and and I think that's um, really good. I want to shift gears a little bit to to talk a little bit more specifically about data. And, and really, you know, knowing you're managing global teams, knowing you have uh, engineering background and you're, you're thinking a lot about, um, you know, a lot of different interrelations of different factors and how you're building products and getting them to market and all of these things. What are the kinds of data that you find most useful? How do you consume that information and kind of where are, uh, you know, bits of advice that you might have for people listening or watching to the show? Uh, okay, so uh, one thing, you know, you, you talked to me a lot about data governance uh, in our past talks, and uh, one thing that always popped up to my mind uh, early in my management career was that an engineer sent this email, and there's about 12 sentences in there, and they all had different facts or different, different pieces of data, yeah. and it looked really bad for my team. And I sat and I printed out that uh, sheet of paper, and I, I highlighted fact, opinion, fact, opinion, Fact and opinion, same sentence. Mm -hmm. What is real data and what was the engineer's opinion? Mm -hmm. And it looked really bad. And I had to re resend out the email saying, are these the facts? And then these are what I believe your opinions are. What do you have that leads you to believe X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. And when it went out to a lot of managers, it looked really bad because they couldn't distinguish the difference between what was fact and what was opinion in that. Mm -hmm. And if you know, if it took me sitting down and going through everything and trying to understand it, I can see real quickly how just data is not useful unless you really have the context of, of, of you know, of what's behind it. You know, it, it's it's funny because it, it, your 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 story here is something that I think we can all understand right now just from our personal lives, trying to, to get data, trying to understand what is the story, what's happening, how much of this is factual versus how much of this is somebody saying, well, this is what I think the, the results of this data are. And at best, we are encumbered by unintentional skew of the results. Like people, even when they're doing their best, can misinterpret things. What's really scary, and this happens in, in our personal lives and in, in the media and all that, but it happens at work too. And that is what happens when somebody's trying to prove a point 
and they're using data yep. and picking and choosing it for something that they already had preconceived. And that that scares me a lot because I've seen we've studied enough like marketing re research and stuff to understand how unintentional biases can inter be introduced. The intentional biases of people trying to make a point and validate what they thought that that terrifies me because we want to be data driven. But the the ability for it to be misused is just everywhere. Yeah, so uh, that's so true, right? Between the engineer that has biases because he doesn't want the problem to be in his part of the design to the uh, CNBC guy in the morning that's trying to get you to buy the stock or trying to get you to sell the stock because he's already in his position and it's going to help him yeah. uh, to like uh, the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about the weather having a wet bias, right? Where if they talk about rain more, people will tune in more to watch the weather report uh -huh. and therefore they get higher ratings. So therefore the weather report is always biased to saying the worst, right? To get you to right. show, to, to, to come in again. Um, and our media certainly has that, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, p politics notwithstanding, just uh, ratings-wise. Um, and so, yeah, all those biases, and we've went through them, and we were in the Kellogg classes, um, affect the way we look at data. Mm -hmm. And I think the best thing you can do is have a bunch of people look at it, right? That have have that would maybe potentially not be biased the same way as the other person. Yeah. Um, obviously, reviews are helpful. But reviews are also only as good as the time you put into them. And that seems to be the, the problem, I think, in a, a, our fast-paced culture now is that it's a lot quicker to uh, go as fast as you can without putting on the seatbelt than slow down the car and put on the seatbelt to make sure you're safe. Yeah. Um, but I think that it, it shows, like, with really important decisions – it may not be enough to just control for data inconsistencies, but to control for analytical inconsistencies and to have some duplication in perhaps the data scientists you have working on challenges or the data analysts you have working on on challenges. Why not? I mean, granted, there's a cost, but wouldn't it be interesting if you gave the same task to multiple different people and saw what they came up with, keep them in parallel lanes and then use that and the distribution of their findings to lead you to the more important decisions. I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, no, that's uh, redundancy is definitely the best way, right? The more data you have, the more you're confident. And uh, that goes from everything from putting your product out on the market and beta testing it really strongly to, um, um, you know, just taking measurements over multiple lots of things or, you know, multiple, uh, you know, builds or something yeah. to get a real good understanding. Well, and then I, I can't help but think that anybody uh, in the audience listening or watching this right now is kind of like, but I can't even get the resources to do this once, let alone multiple times. I think that's a fair counterpoint because we have trouble articulating the value of those kinds of analysis. And I think a lot of it comes back to measuring the results of the times we've used data. Like everybody's always forward looking. And, and I'll never forget one of my favorite uh, classes that we had at school was when um, it was Harry Kramer who was teaching the managerial leadership class. And he was like, are you managing for the short term or for the long term? If you're running the business, are you managing for the short term or the long term? And all of us, you know, budding MBA students were like, we're going to manage for the long term because <laughs> we care about growth true. and we care about all of these things. And in reality, he's like, guys, you got to realize that the long term never gets here except in the short term. And you have to be 
thoughtful in what's happening in the short term because that's the only place you're held accountable for what you're doing. And if you're only ever looking forward, you're going to lose sight of what's important today. And remember, today's the end of the long term. It's the end of the medium term. It's it's the short term. It's the beginning of a medium term and a long term. And it's partway through. It's, it's a constantly evolving circumstance, but you need to look at it from all angles. And I think that's true in how we use data and analysis and why we've struggled to, to make the value proposition clear on things like data governance, because we're always forward looking. We're like, oh, it's going to be great. We do all this data governance and we do all this def defining data and data quality and, and all of the things we do in the future could be wonderful. Why don't we validate that the stuff we've already done has actually worked? Like maybe we should be holding ourselves accountable in the same kinds of ways as CEOs are held financially accountable. We should be doing the same with how we're using information because it will help us get better at it in what we're doing today and tomorrow. So no doubt those CEOs, um, especially of public companies, right? They're measured in the short term normally uh, very strong. And yeah. that can actually, you know, uh, it, it's a it's a balance, right? If, if you're not good in the short term, you won't be there tomorrow. If, uh, if you don't have a long-term plan, you know, you might not be there too long either. That's right. That's right. Well, and, and I mean, it's natural to want to have a good long-term plan. It's it's natural to look forward, but it's just that, that aspect of if we're constantly doing that, then we're going to lose our way. And so I'm curious, like when you're managing these teams and, and you have different things happening in different parts of the world, how do you kind of bring it all together? Like what, what are those pieces of information that you're always looking for? Like what are on a daily basis or weekly basis or whenever, how do you use data and, and try to be as, as objective? as possible in, in your analysis of it yourself? Well, so there's, I guess, a couple things, right? Uh, you know, a large thing is just task management. Did something get done or not? Uh, the definition of done sometimes is loosely defined. So people will say they're done and you're like, well, you did three fourths of it. Mm -hmm. Or some people will never be done, but they were done well enough that we could have made a decision on their data, you know, a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, so you get those, uh, you know, you get the engineer that wants to just knock every task done and go through it as quick as possible. You get the other ones that want to spend forever on every task to make sure it's done to perfection. Right. Um, you got to try to balance that a little bit. Um, and then I think the other big thing is just really uh, understanding, you know, trying to have kind of merge points. Um, so for us, maybe a merge point would be the first time we build a product in a plant, right? Mm -hmm. We have to have a certain level of mechanical design done. We have to have a certain level of circuitry ready to go. We have to have the plant understanding what they need to do. We normally will then have some sort of meeting and review beforehand, and we'll kind of move forward from there. Mm -hmm. And then once you get kind of sample products, you got to start testing them. And when you start testing, and you've it's a prototype, right? You've, you built one car, and now you're going to try to judge how well you're going to build all your future cars off of one car. You really have to understand that your design could be the problem. Sure. That it's, it might not be the data. It could be the data. It could be the design because they're both kind of new. Maybe you're doing new tests, but it's also, you know, a limited sample set. Right. Uh, you just kind of have to roll from there. Hopefully, but, if you get really good news, you know, you can move on. It's when you get the bad news that you kind of really need to think about, is this really bad or where is the bad? Mm. So to, to, to spin the direction a little bit, how... How is your success determined? Because I think about you have these different folks that are building 
um, different products. You're managing the teams. Some things are in your control. Some things are out of your control. Um, what makes you successful in the eyes of your organization? Is it is it ultimately does a good product get out the door, and is it financially successful in the marketplace, or or is there something else that is is you know factoring in there? So I think a few things, uh, obviously the financial successful pro project, uh, you can probably hide a lot of mistakes if it's selling like hotcakes and you're making tons of millions of dollars out of it. Uh, you know, they might be a lot, you know, there's a lot more forgiveness there over some of the uh, sins you committed as you built the thing. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, uh, taking a long-term view uh, as a project manager, I need to make sure my relationships have been or are still well-established at the end of my projects. Mm -hmm. So I can't really uh, piss everyone off because they're, I'm gonna, they're gonna need to work for me again. Uh, so there's a little bit of me taking pride in kind of just managing those relationships. But then there's things like service returns or customers mm -hmm. that just give us good reviews. Uh, and that really goes a long way as well. Mm -hmm. So if customers like our product, you know, that's important. Um, yeah. If we're uh, if we feel service, you know, if, if our products aren't coming back with issues and they're not uh, there's not downtime, mm -hmm. uh, that's that's the other big one. How how do you I want to talk a little bit more about about um, like issues and returns and, and when you do get like insight into something that you've brought to market has a flaw. How do you collect that insight and how do you react to that? What are the kinds of things you do as a, as a project manager? So we get we get this all the time. And sometimes you get this, too, where you didn't think you had a problem. And then you made a change and all of a sudden the change uncovered something, but uh, it's maybe not a real problem. You haven't had a lot of service returns on it, but it could be a problem and you've got these questionable things, right? Uh, and so I think the first thing we try to do is, is take some independent data, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we pull some products from stock. We try to see if we can reproduce the problems. Sometimes we, uh, we have previous units we've tested before that we sometimes keep around and we say, well, what's changed? Did this have the problem? And maybe, maybe one of our changes introduced this problem. So I think, you know, real careful revision control and management of, of, of stuff. And then I think just going out and trying to reproduce it is probably the best way. That's 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 interesting because and, and one of the things that I've always liked to talk to you about is because you're actually producing stuff like so much of what I've done in my career has been more around services and helping organizations do the kinds of project management or what have you. But at the end of the day, you're doing all this work and it manifests in this thing in this something that somebody buys and you have services and stuff surrounding that and, and, and various um, pieces there. But I've always been fascinated about that aspect of it is that you have this tangible good that's that you know somebody uses to do uh different things um i want I'm, I'm curious about like because you've been doing this uh kind of project management remotely in a lot of cases i know you work with teams um at your organization in person as well but um you know so many folks that i hope are listening to this uh podcast are are now managing teams remotely for the first time. You talked a little bit about some of your like in-meeting techniques, but what other things do you do as an individual to help be as successful as possible managing kind of widely dispersed teams, especially when you're uh, doing remotes? And, and, and I mean, those nine o'clock meetings, I've, I've heard you talk about those for a long time and you've just had to factor that into how your, how your life works. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that as well. 
Yeah, well, I guess the ultimate is uh, the stuff that's off the table now, which is going and visiting them face to face, right? Uh, sitting down for dinner, uh, understanding if you know they have families and kind of what they're into. Uh, you know, I, I was building a lot of product in Thailand for several years while we were going to Kellogg, and I would do a lot of trips to, to Thailand. And part of that is, uh, you know, just me making sure what we communicated was correct. Yeah. Some of it's like double checking ourselves, not thinking they're going to do something wrong in Thailand. Did I tell them to do the right thing? Um, I think, you know, the other thing is there's always judgment calls, right? And so at the end of the day, you need someone to make those judgment calls. And uh, not it's kind of not always fair to force, if you don't have, send a manager there, then you're forcing engineers that might not be responsible to make some judgment calls. Uh, especially if it's in the middle of the night while you're sleeping in Chicago, right? Yeah. Uh, so face-to-face is definitely something that uh, maybe the world will get more away from over time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that certainly has helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What, how do you keep it all straight? Like, cause I, I mean, I, I can't even manage my schedule half the time with somebody in, in the Eastern time zone in the U S and I was being in the central time zone. It's how do you even just have developed the organizational ability in your own time to, to manage the complexities. Cause that can't be easy. I am a list person. I believe in writing lists and have lists and I check off what I did. I I put a line through, use the line through so I can still read it. Mm -hmm. And then I do it by week. So then every, anything not checked off this week goes into next week's list, but I remove all the old stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, even sometimes for uh, my, my director that I report to, I sometimes just print out my list of what, what was done last week and what got done and what I'm kind of managing to. Uh, you know, the trick there, Anthony, is sometimes you walk by someone in the hallway that says, hey, I need you to do this or this. And I'm like, I'm never going to know what he just said. Please send that to me in an email. I'll yeah. transfer it from the email to my list. Yeah. Um, I've, I've started even doing this with my house, right? I have all this housework that needs to get done. And I have a list downstairs of stuff that I can check off as time goes on. Yeah, uh, I, I, I use a, a similar technique. And, and to have those lists... Um, you know, it, it it allows me I, the way I think about it. I I, I offload from RAM because I'm a computer guy, right? You're oh, an I'm engineer, you so you're you're gonna get this. Oh, one. Yeah, yeah. Offload from RAM, write it to disk, so that I can go and reference it whenever I need to. And and that um you know it, you cannot keep your head around all of the complexities all the time. You have to have ways of putting something aside. You know, shove it in that proverbial drawer for a little while, and then pull it out when you need it, and find ways to to do that virtually. Um, as well as, as, you know, literally and, and physically when you're, when you're dealing with actual, um, paper and, and those things. But I think it's, it's building that and doing that yourself and, and having known you for a long time, I know you're a very organized, very thoughtful person when it comes to that stuff. That's the only way you can expect a team to have that as well. You have to lead by example in these kinds of things. If you're all over the place all the time, your team is going to be all over the place all the time. There's no way around that. So you have to find a way to figure out what works and recognize your sphere of responsibility and your sphere of influence and then do those things that may not be always pleasant, like getting on a plane for 18 hours to get to a place halfway around the world. But it's important enough to do it when you need to and, and even before you need to and, and to show that you care enough to to make that happen. And I think that's um, you know important for all of us right now is we may not be able to get on that plane, but we can reach out and connect and find ways to learn and understand um, before simply directing people to jump the way we tell them to jump. 
I think the other thing I've tried to do too is keep my meetings with less people, but more focused. Mm. And I try to only do meetings for half an hour, even though that never, ever works. I understand <laughs> you, you get people together, but at least saying it's only going to be a half an hour meeting a means the burden to attend seems less. Yeah. And also I think it can be more focused and less people can attend in general. Mm -hmm. um, and then what I'll do sometimes is like at the end of the week, I'll be like, this is all the information I have, like I'll make a, a, a PowerPoint, which will be like me dumping emails from one person in with a topic at the top on one slide. And uh, this was decided in this meeting on another slide. And it's kind of like me dumping my brain into a PowerPoint <laughs> so that a next week I can remember what the heck's going on. But also I can forward that out and people will read through it and say, hey, I have a question. I didn't know this was happening. And then they kind of can explore all the other things that are going on with the project team as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you do you find that that process extends out to the rest of the team or is that something that the rest of the team is leaning on you to provide them that structure, that communication? Because it sounds like a lot of people on your teams are going to be pretty focused on building the thing and the, and the function that they're focused on. You're the one kind of stringing all these strands together and providing that cohesive vision and, and communication to others for that. That's a, that's a key part of your role. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I would agree. I, I definitely have to try to make sure everyone aware of how the other parts are moving. I think, uh, you know, you kind of ask, do other people document like this or not on my team? And I think a lot of times it's me asking them to do something. Mm -hmm. Hey, could you make me one slide on this? Can you summarize this for me? Um, and, you know, engineers will tend to go into a lot more detail than I want to know even. And then if I'm kicking it up a couple levels, you know, you have to simplify it, you know. Right, um, right. Th that's why when you kind of are talking to me about these specific data, it's never to me as a manager uh, the number, right? I, I guess I can know, you know, uh, hey, you're five dB off of this limit for RF power, so you can't sell it. All right, that's that's a number, right? I guess mm -hmm. that's a saying that we're failing something. The question is, what is the action plan to 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 conquer through that, right? Yeah, that's the more important thing. And you know, maybe the engineer's like, oh yeah, that's just a mistake. If we change this one resistor on the board, that'll be fixed. Or maybe it's we need to sit and investigate what's going on, and we have no idea. You know, it could be either of those two. You bring up kind of a a very kind of key important point around just business intelligence and the way we share information and use information in our organizations, and that is try to present information that is at the right grain, the right granularity to drive the actions required. And and if you're if you're raising this up to the CEO, they don't care about the threshold of of the the volume controls or whatever. They care <laughs> what do I need to control from a financial perspective, from a resource perspective? Do I have to make a statement on our next earnings call? Those kinds of things. And be prepared for the driving question. This is my, my rule of thumb is always be prepared with information one layer deeper than you expect to get questions about. And and because you will get that question every now and then, but you want to have that knowledge at the deep enough level to accommodate those that are asking you questions. But then you might have to kick it to a, an engineer and say, OK, you're the expert on this. We really need a deep dive because this has 
bigger implications than we originally imagined. And that's how you can kind of facilitate that. But it's true of the granularity of data and the timeliness of the data, like how how quickly you need to access information about what's happening should be in relative alignment to how quickly you need to make decisions on it. So do you need intraday feeds uh, you know, every three minutes on what people are saying about your products on Amazon? Probably not. That's probably more investment than would lead to meaningful outcomes based on the decisions that are going to be driven by it. But maybe daily, maybe weekly, maybe monthly. And there's cost implications and complexity implications in aggregating that data at different levels. So you think about the grain, which is the level of detail. And you think about the timeliness, which is how fast you need to push the data itself to the people that are going to make decisions on it. So that all of these things, oftentimes in businesses, are uh, implicit. They, they, they just kind of happen. But as data professionals, so if you're a data professional out there building the systems or building the, the the teams that are working on this stuff, be thoughtful on this because anybody who's using data is going to have a sense of it. Whether or not they're thinking about it this deliberately or in this particularly is another question. I think maybe they should. But the, the key is, is that we need to be thinking about how are we presenting information, whether on a PowerPoint, in an analytical setting, you name it, in a way that can be consumed and drive decisions and activities from the people that are hearing it. You know, Anthony, when I think of data a lot, I think the stock market probably has a pretty well understanding of, of how to use data, right? I mean, here it is, it pretty much directly translates into money for some of these people, right? And so I always think a lot of times I, I see certain things that the stock market does, and I think that that's more meaningful than maybe some of the ways we push through data. Mm -hmm. um, ex example is like, uh, it's looking at a stock price. Uh, are you looking at the stock price? Or are you looking at a moving average right over time, right? Mm -hmm. not, not too many people could tell me where their stock was yesterday at 12.01 in 53 seconds, right? But they can probably give an idea of where it is in the month or mm -hmm. something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think sometimes I, I'm surprised more companies haven't looked at really what the stock market's doing with some of their data and try to copy that for other forms of data. It's, it's um, a great place to learn the kind of what is possible, like how how trading firms and how financial institutions are leveraging data gives us a lot of insight into what's possible for our own, own organizations. And, and there's some that are pushing the envelope in, in other ways and in different uh, possibilities. But that analytical side, especially the financial industry is probably doing it if you're trying to do it. And if you look at what their techniques are, or how they aggregate information or how they communicate stuff, it's really interesting to see the differences. If you watch CNBC and look at the stock ticker and how people are reacting to like intraday market fluctuations, or you open up the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis and see the articles that are written there versus some of the longer term uh, magazines that talk about economic macroeconomic trends over longer periods of time. And, and it's it's not that anyone is more or less important, but the time frame and the decisions that are being driven by those things are, are definitely different. And we can model our own information gathering and information reporting and, and uh, analysis um, in our own businesses in, in very similar ways. I think that's a great point. I think I guess one more big thing to talk about, right, is like we had all these plans for 2020 being this crazy awesome year yeah. uh, between, uh, you know, the U.S. election, assuming that, uh, you know, the government would probably spend and try to keep the economy as hot as possible because of, you know, one side of politics and all the spending that was going to happen for the election through the media. Right. And oh, like yeah. people like Bloomberg blowing two hundred million dollars a month or something that we thought the economy would be really hot. And we got black swan pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so that that's kind of a, a good thing to kind of realize too. You can have all these long-term plans all you want, but it doesn't take too much to derail that. And, uh, you know, I, I think over the last month we've had to replan two or three different times, right? Mm -hmm. One China shutting down, we had to replan. Then U S is shutting down. And actually just this week, it sounds like Mexico is now following the U S uh, I guess I don't have a full grasp of that just yet, but, yeah. uh, you know, big, big implications in when you're managing a supply chain that has a global reach, like you're, you're constantly shifting things and there's only so much transferability between what your plan in China might do versus what your plan in Mexico might do. It's, it's, they were never designed to be failovers in quite that way. Um, when everything globally is having real, real challenges, like it's, yeah, I think a, a black swan is, is a definite way of, of looking at that. Um, we we didn't predict it, but now we're reacting to it, and it's impacting everybody. And hopefully, um, we will weather the storm, and and things will get back online. But I think right now, and and the focus is is to just do the best we can to keep learning, to keep getting better at things, and use this as a way to be more even more resilient in the future. So. With yeah, that. so I, I think if you run out of things to do, what you should do is figure out how to pay yourself forward, right? Mm -hmm. Try to get something done for the future. If it's, uh, you know, it's a good time to do extra documentation of things you never documented that you should have or review things that you should have, but you never got to it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just try to pay yourself forward, I think is the best thing we can do at this point. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great advice, and and I think with that, I think we're about out of time. So, um, Carl, thank you so much for for doing this with me and 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 sharing your knowledge and insights with uh, our audience. I, I, it's really helpful to to hear your perspective on all of these things and and to give us some tips on. Um, you know, the, the way to manage these kind of teams in a global context and, and building something uh, that has, you know, global reach. So um, with that, you know, thank you very much for, for being here. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Anthony. All right. And with that, thank you for uh, watching or listening today. Uh, please remember to follow, subscribe, like, rate, and leave a review of our show on YouTube and all the major podcast platforms. You can find information about supporting the show directly and how to get a signed copy of my data leadership book at patreon.com forward slash data leadership lessons. Visit algman.com to learn more about Algman data leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.